perspective. This is God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did As the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We stop there in our reading from God's word. Because of who came at Christmas, we rejoice and worship the son. That's our main point tonight. Let me unfold that in the, the three points you see on your, your handout. Who, who is this? Who, who came at Christmas? Why is Christmas such a big deal, not only in our country, but around the world? Not every book of the Bible tells the story of Christmas, tells the story of Jesus' earthly life at all. Just the four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And not every Gospel records Jesus' birth, just two, Matthew and Luke. And Luke, uh, being himself a doctor before he wrote down the Gospel of Luke, seems to write as though he interviewed Mary, the mother. That leaves one account, one account, just Matthew, And Matthew writes as though from the perspective of Joseph, maybe even if he had interviewed Joseph. So consider, for example, if you turn back to the very first words of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So that's the first two sermon points. You'll have to wait or look ahead for the third sermon point. First sermon point, son of David. Second sermon point, son of Abraham. So first son of David. Now we're in verse 18. Matthew's clear purpose so far in approaching things from Joseph's perspective was to depict Jesus as the new son of David, the rightful heir to the title king of the Jews. So in order to present Jesus to the Jewish people as the true king of Israel, Matthew would need to show that this newborn baby was the firstborn son of the man who currently held the royal title son of David. That man's son, and only that man's firstborn son, could be the next rightful heir to the throne and possess this title, son of David. That explains the presence of the family tree, the genealogy. That's why Matthew started his book with the list of the generations. 
because he needed to show who is now king, who has this title. And what we learned from the genealogy is that in the time that Matthew began to write, the current son of David was Joseph. The title son of David in verse 1, and then if you look back to verse 16, Joseph is there listed. Look how carefully Matthew writes. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then also in our passage, verse 20, But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew is showing with such care, such carefulness, that Jesus Christ was the firstborn son in Joseph's family. More about Joseph's connection later. Think this, is Joseph the biological father, and yet he's able to pass on the title son of David. So logically, Matthew's doing very careful work. Matthew's taking us into the story in verse 18 at the precise point during which Joseph is engaged, but not yet married, Matthew has rewinded history to the point where you would need to know when Joseph is still without a son. So we don't know who the proper recipient would be of the title son of David, and yet he's having become engaged. So Joseph is just now showing potential, new potential, to have his first son soon upon getting married. So that's the right place to back up the story enough for us to understand who holds this title. And as Matthew showed then, the son came sooner to Joseph's family and in a different way into Joseph's family than even Joseph himself expected. Mary, who we would call the fiancé of Joseph, was already pregnant. And this was a surprise to Joseph because Joseph had never done the activity required to make him be the father. Do you sense the scandal building here? This is the backdrop of Christmas. In Jewish law, in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, for uh, specific um, reference, Betrothal, or formal engagement to be married, was much more of a commitment than we're used to in the American custom of engagements. In America, it's acceptable, unless you ask certain family members, it's acceptable in general to break off an engagement. It truly is. You can do it without a lawyer. You'll upset people, or people are disappointed, but they can be broken off. It's understood. But in these days... In Jewish betrothals, the engagement itself was already a binding legal contract on the same level that we would say a marriage contract is. Just like a marriage relationship, there's only two ways to get out of an engagement in those days, a betrothal in those days. Are you ready? Two ways to get out. Death or divorce. First, let's consider death for a moment. If the man died during the engagement, the woman was considered a widow. 
if the woman died during the engagement, the man was considered a widower. This is consistent with how they viewed betrothal. Now let's consider the other way to get out of the engagement or betrothal. Divorce. If a man decided to divorce the woman, then the man had to go through the same legal procedure as a divorce for a marriage would be. As evidence of this, notice carefully in verse 19, if you have your passage open, verse 19 uses the term husband for Joseph, even though I've made the case to you that this is before the wedding. That's because in those days, to be consistent, as soon as you got engaged, you started to talk about him as not your fiancé, but as your husband. This is the way that the language worked. Husband, not fiancé, was the term they used for betrothal or engagement before the actual wedding day. The woman, however, was not called a wife during the engagement. She was not called wife until the wedding day and thereafter. She remained living in her father's house until the wedding day, only after her husband took the betrothed woman to his own home during the public wedding ceremony. As a part of the ceremony, she goes from her father's house to her husband's house. Only after that did they come together so that she became his wife, and only then, to be clear, did they consummate their marriage bond. Verse 19 has roots back in Deuteronomy. A woman who lost the status of virgin would no longer be eligible to be married to her betrothed, her fiancé, her husband. It was not an option to proceed forward and go through with the wedding. It was not an option, as we might do, to speed up the date of the wedding. That's just not an option. She must be given a document of divorce because the engagement was already broken by her actions. So Joseph is in this pickle. He's in this predicament. He is a godly man. He wanted to do the right thing before God and the best thing for Mary and in the right way. But he didn't have a choice. He didn't have a choice. He's not giving up on Mary. So often we take our modern American baggage around the word divorce and we import it into that. It's not in this passage. The passage goes out of its way to say how righteous Joseph was. He's not giving up on Mary and he's not disobeying God. He's obeying God. Rather than taking her to court, and disgracing her in public, he desired to do the right thing. He had no choice. He had to divorce her while showing the most kindness possible in this situation. He desired to put Mary away in a quiet divorce from the engagement agreement. But there's just one thing that Joseph didn't know. He knew she's pregnant. He knew he wasn't the father. That's not what I'm talking about. There's one thing missing, not that. What's the one thing Joseph didn't know? This is where Matthew's taking our minds. What's the one thing Joseph would have no possible way on this earth to know? What's the one thing that's in half the Christmas carols that we are so used to that you expect me to say it tonight, and yet when we go back in that story to Joseph's mindset, the salient, important, 
one fact that he did not know was that though pregnant, Mary was a virgin. And what does that mean for the legality I just took you through? It means, therefore, that Mary remained legally eligible to continue to be engaged and go ahead toward the wedding day and become married to Joseph in all righteousness. She had not sinned against God. She had not broken that command. She was not, therefore, ineligible. Joseph did not have no choice and must divorce her. Now that was a category Joseph had not thought of. That Mary was with child and yet a virgin. Do you know why Joseph never thought of that? Listen very carefully. The reason Joseph never thought of that is because it literally never had happened in the entire history of the world. That's why Joseph never thought of that. We get so used to Christmas and the Virgin Mary and so on that we forget the unfolding of the events as Matthew is careful to point out to us. How could Joseph know this was the case for his betrothed? For his Mary, she is the exception in all the history of the world. How's he supposed to know that? Now do you appreciate all that hung on Joseph's next action? Will he marry her or divorce her? If Joseph were to divorce his fiancée Mary, what would happen to my first point? What would happen to Matthew's point? What would happen to the title son of David? Would it go from Joseph to Jesus? Would Jesus be the firstborn son in Joseph's house and therefore gain that title? Would he be the next king of Israel at his birth? You see all that hung on Joseph's next action? In order for Jesus to have that legal title of king, Mary would have to be the wife of Joseph at the time of the birth of the first son in Joseph's house. Is it any wonder that before Joseph acted on his best plan, his best, most godly thinking that he could come up with with his wisdom in this earth, before he took that action, an angel of the Lord appeared from heaven to earth to ask him to reconsider. Notice in verse 20 how the angel of the Lord referred to Joseph. What's the first thing out of the angel's mouth after Joseph? What is significant from heaven's perspective about Joseph? He has that title. He's son of David. That's why the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why would he fear? Because it would be a sin. But the angel is saying, don't fear, because it's not a sin. She hasn't done anything wrong. How do you know that? It goes on to read in verse 20, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. How's Matthew supposed to know that unless an angel from God comes and tells him that? This is beautiful. Notice, heaven's angel knew only in this way would Jesus be the king of the Jews. Fast forward. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 27. A lot has happened. Jesus grew up. 
Jesus worked miracles. He walked on water and all of it. They've beat him. They've pierced him. He's hanging on the cross. Matthew 27, 37. There's a sign above his head. Remember what the sign says? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's bookends. Matthew has told us what we need to know about his entrance and about his death. Jesus, the king, was born as king. He died as king. He rose again as king in order to save us from our sins. First title, son of David. Second title, son of Abraham. A lot more briefly, verse 21, son of Abraham is the second title that Matthew used back in Matthew 1.1. Again, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. This title, son of Abraham, is to show that Jesus was the promised savior and he came as God promised. Remember, Matthew's writing to the Jews. They knew the promise through Abraham. I'll review it briefly. Genesis twenty-two eighteen. just after God said he himself would provide a sacrifice in place of Abraham's son Isaac, God promised to Abraham, listen, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And even more plainly, we read in Galatians 3, 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So this term, son of Abraham, refers to the long-promised Christ, the ram, needed to take Isaac's place in Genesis 22, the Savior. And we see that fulfillment in verses 21 to 23 of our passage, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you take nothing else away from tonight, remember the name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name means. Matthew one twenty one. As if that were not enough proof, verse 22, Matthew explicitly stated why all of this took place. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name. Emmanuel. It was the Lord who had given that sign in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Jesus is the son of Abraham. We've got one more title, our third point for Jesus. We know that Mary was the biological mother. We understand that by nine months of carrying him, giving birth. We know that Joseph was the adoptive father. We've covered that part of the story. Who's the biological father, if I'll press the point? Our author points us in this direction of wondering this when he wrote in verse 18, with child, when he wrote in verse 21, a son, when he wrote in verse 23, a son, when he wrote in verse 25, a son. It's a highlight of the story. It's a theme. It's a major theme. A son. Whose son? Who's the father? He's begging us to ask. And furthermore, notice that this child was never described in chapter 1 or chapter 2 as Mary's son nor as Joseph's son. It's just this son. In fact, if you fast forward to chapter 2, part of which um, Darren read this this evening, we'll study that tomorrow morning, Lord willing, but if you read through chapter 2, five times we find a curious phrase. The phrase goes like this, the child and his mother Mary. Five times, the child and his mother Mary, the child and his mother Mary. 
the question seems to keep bubbling up from Matthew's words for us as readers, whose son is this? And it's not until we get to chapter 2, verse 15, that we see a glimmer. There, Matthew wrote, Out of Egypt I called my son, but it's still hinting. It's the Lord, but it's hinting. And a ringing confirmation to drown all doubt is provided when you get all the way to chapter 3, verse 17, where Jesus is baptized, and he's in the water, and we hear something. Listen carefully, Matthew three seventeen, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's my Son, says a voice from heaven. And who spoke out of heaven? Out loud. God the Father. God is saying, This is my Son. It's the Son of God. It's the Son of God the Father. It's God the Son. Not only is Matthew's goal accomplished in our passage, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, by showing that Jesus was not the son of Joseph in a biological sense, but Matthew's goal is repeatedly confirmed later throughout Matthew's whole gospel account, that is, that Jesus' origin is traced to God himself. Jesus Christ, and Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, the king, the reigning king of God the Father, his king, the savior of us from our sins, the newborn child of Christmas is none other than the divine son of God. So we rightly call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. The beauty of Christmas is that God is with us. God is Jesus' biological father through the action of the Holy Spirit. It hasn't happened since Adam. who was formed directly by God from the dust. That's exactly why Jesus Christ is called the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5. The Son of God has come into the world to take on human flesh as the second Adam and even as the last Adam to reverse the damage caused by the first Adam in the fall into sin. Simply put, Jesus, the Son of God, has come to save his people from their sins. He went from the womb to the manger, to the cross, to the tomb, to the skies. He gave us his spirit. He's coming again. And he commands us to worship him. So what have we seen tonight? Because of who came the first Christmas, we rejoice and worship the Son. Who is he? The Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of God. What does that mean for you? My application, as you see in the main point line, is that we rejoice and worship. What does it mean to rejoice and worship? Rejoice with trembling, I started off with. That's our theme. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice and worship. It means to be convinced that you can't make it through today without Jesus. Do you really believe that? It's truth. To worship Jesus Christ is not simply to gather at services like this and stand when we stand and sing when we sing. It's to realize how dependent we are on this Jesus. It was so necessary for us to have Jesus be king that an angel from heaven came and stopped Joseph from divorcing Mary. 
It was so important that he would be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever, that he would have the title son of David, that he would be the son of Abraham, the one promised from long before. God had a long plan in doing this. And all of this is necessary so that you can get through today. That sort of dependence is worship. That's thanking God for sending his son, the Lord Jesus, at Christmas. That's why we make a big deal of Christmas. If you're not relying on Jesus to get you through today and tomorrow and this week and the new year, you're relying on something else. Maybe it's you, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's money, maybe it's a substance. You're relying on something else if you're not relying on Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're here tonight, but you're not sure if you deserve to be. You're so convicted about your sin. If we knew what you were up to, you'd be really embarrassed, really ashamed. And you need help with that. Remember what the name Jesus means? He'll save his people from their sins. That's where the hope is. He takes our shame away. He takes our guilt away. Convicted about your sin and you're tired of feeling guilty? Feel guilty all the time? And you're stuck in bad patterns? We have a Savior. He came. Rejoice. Turn to him in faith. Maybe you're outcast and lonely. We hardly had time to talk about that tonight. But reflect on the name Emmanuel. It means God with us. You're not alone. No one's lonely with Christ at our side. You're waiting on God to answer prayers. You've been praying for something for a long, long, long time. You're just waiting. This is the God who fulfills all of his promises to us, sometimes centuries long. He will fulfill all of his promises. And then he tells us in the New Testament that all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That's why we make a big deal of Christmas. Maybe you're just plain hurting. Life's hard. Maybe you're vulnerable. Something could really go wrong. You're scared. And that's where we get reminded that Jesus is the son of David, which means he's the king. He's the king of all, the king of kings. He's the king of heaven and earth, the king of the church. He protects us, and he will always protect us. Maybe you're searching for meaning. You want to be part of something big, part of something meaningful. You want to do something important. That's a God-given desire. And Jesus is up to something big. He's building a kingdom. He's selecting people who will work for him. Make application to him in the church to work for him. Maybe you just hunger for love. You feel unloved. You feel nobody likes you, nobody loves you. It's pretty common. It's a dark world. Light has come. Love has come. Listen to how God puts it in 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Because He's the child of God. We get to be called children of God. That's what we are. You are loved. Let me just wrap up by saying this. Since the baby Jesus is the king, we bow before him and rejoice in worshiping him. And worshiping him includes obeying his commands. Study the life of Joseph, how he obeyed. If obeying God meant divorcing Mary, then he would do it. And if obeying God meant keeping Mary, then he would do it. Whatever you have for me, Lord. That's the posture of the Christian. And since the baby Jesus is a son of Abraham, child of promise, who came as he promised, we can believe that he will come again as he promised. Behold, I coming. 
And since the baby Jesus is Son of God, we are expected to worship him. I'll leave you with two questions. Since the baby was called Jesus because it's he who will save his people from their sins, has he saved you from your sins? If no, then ask him right away. If yes, then my second question. Are you like the godly man Joseph, obeying God in the way that God commands? Son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, we worship, rejoice, and obey. Let's pray. Father, tonight,